0: this is a gift from the Mind Center. I said I would leave it here. We are now well-stocked with a clock. (laughs) And on that note of unexpected gifts coming in, you remember yesterday I uh, spoke just as an example, gave the example of desiring an apple and the discussion around that. An apple just amazingly appeared right on my doorknob. And when I saw that, I thought it was a slip of the tongue I meant to say Porsche. Portia as your object of desire. <laughs> Portia. <Porsche. laughs> okay. Just by the way, before we settle in, um, many of you may have heard in this kind of very common classification within Buddhism of peace people of mm, dull, middling, and superior faculties. You've heard that? Dull, middling, medium and superior faculties, um, just indicating overall how quickly people are, li- rapidly to, are likely to develop in their spiritual practice, dull people a bit slower and so forth. So in terms of just self-assessment, in terms of dull, medium, middling and um, superior faculties, how many of you would place yourself in terms of shamatha practice in the dull faculties? I just wanted you to know that you had company. (laughs) Because quite a number of you think that you're at the bottom of the class. And I think we're doing just the opposite of uh, Garrison Keillor and Lake Wobegon, where all the children were above average. (laughs) And most of our meditators are all below average. Hmm, how can that work? let's, Let's pause just for a moment. So, just a gentle reminder with respect to shamatha, and the initial, sometimes overwhelming challenge of trying to get on top of this vast momentum of obsessive, compulsive, delusional thinking—the runaway, wild elephant of the mind. Uh, it is easy to get discouraged. I know it well. But if we consider in the context of this retreat that most of us here, probably everybody is probably must be at least 20 years old, Most many of us over 30, we've had at least 20 years, or 30 or more, years to really habituate, just in terms of, if we want to be biological here, in terms of brain circuitry and so forth, psychologically, just sheer habit, we've had an awful lot of time to habituate, to just taking OCD as completely normal, not even resisting it. And now for three weeks, versus 20, 30 years minimum, for three weeks we've been trying to turn the tide. If it doesn't happen too quickly, maybe we should take into account that we've had an awful lot of time to habituate in the opposite direction. And there are two aspects of dharma. It goes back to developmental and to discovery. The developmental approach is all about, really about, rehabituation, reconditioning, developing new habits, really healthy, beneficial habits, Habits of sanity, habits of relaxation, habits of inner calm and silence, habits of clarity. Those are habits, right? So from the developmental approach, it's developing new habits. And they become habits. You wake up in the, first, in the morning, the first thing in the mind is clear, and immediately you're getting whoo. You're getting grounded right in experience, and you're proceeding from there, because it's a habit. Or the, or you're starting in the morning with bodhicitta, it's a habit. So a developmental process is really developing new habits that are really serving us well rather than the old habits that just bring misery. From one perspective, from the other perspective, discovery is that as we devote ourselves to practice, we are unveiling the innate sense of ease, the innate stillness, the innate luminosity of awareness itself that manifests as discovering shamatha. So, two approaches. Complementary, same reality, spoken of from different perspectives. So today, we we come back for the second time to the fourth of the four measurables, as I mentioned last time, something of the the, the grand finale, the culmination, the full flowering in this sequence. And a very I, I hope it becomes more and more clear a very meaningful development from loving kindness to compassion to empathetic joy uh, that the sequence there is meaningful, and now to equanimity, even-mindedness, even-heartedness an even sense of caring for self and others, really self and others. Overcoming the the barriers, the unevenness that's created by attachment, hostility, and indifference. So out of this comes phrases like unconditional love, unconditional compassion, because it's based rooted in this even-heartedness, even-mindedness. But Dharma really has to be practical, and that is, we're here for a short time. Many of us will be going back to loved ones, to work, to colleagues, to family, to friends, and so forth, a whole network of relationships. And so, does this still does this translate? Does this translate, going from a retreat, where we're really maintaining silence, and living quite quietly in our own space with our own rooms, does this translate the cultivation of equanimity, this even heartedness, breaking down, eroding the attachment for those near, the aversion for those far, and so forth? Does this translate over into what a lot of people like to call real life? Real life. And I think if it doesn't, then this is a very stunted type of practice, kind of cloistered. It's good only when you're in a retreat, but then it just doesn't translate. It just can't be applied. So let's make it as rich as possible. When we come back to special relationships, and some of the special relationships are here, uh, people who are coming here as couples, as couples. Well, this means that there's a special bond between the two people and the couples who are coming here with children. It's a special bond, unique bond. And so how can we envision, Can is it possible to envision really realizing the taste, coming to immeasurable equanimity and still being married? Are still having a girlfriend, boyfriend, still having children, still having friends. Or does mean all friendships have terminated? Sorry, you are just lined up with the other seven billion, you know? Because I am even... What was your name again? <laughs> so, how do these special relationships come in? Bearing in mind that some of the greatest masters from the past. Padmasambhava, very close relationship with Tsogyal, Marpa was married one of my teachers, Sakyadamala, she's been married for, oh, must be many, many years now, more than 50, more than 50 years, five five sons, five children, married, long-term marriage, and she is extraordinary practitioner. So some of course follow monastic ideal, but not all of them, and some of those who do not are really spectacular practitioners. So what does this mean? to attend to a person with whom one has a very special relationship and in the midst of that to realize a deepening deepening sense of equanimity with regard to this person with whom one has a very special relationship. Now bear in mind it's not just for lay people. I've spent a lot of time with monks and I lived in a monastery for, for some years and I knew a lot of monks from old Tibet. That was really one of the great benefits of my generation. Because our teachers had been raised in Tibet. A lot of the younger ones now, they were raised in Nepal, India, and so forth. It's just different. But it was kind of cool to know what was it like with these monks who were raised in Tibet where their living circumstances were pretty much what it was like 300 years ago, 500 years ago. What was it like? And I I got a good dose of that. And what I found from so many of these monks I knew back in the 70s who were really pretty much fresh out of Tibet and their memories were so vivid, so clear, is a sense of camaraderie a sense of closeness, warm, I mean really strong bonds of friendship. Among the monks within there, they would call kamsen, the kamsen, within their house, within their college, within their university, within their tradition, within Tibetan Buddhism, within Buddhism, within Dharma, you know, but concentric, sh- concentric shells, right? But there was their kamsen, like with Gesher He's from a particular region of Kam, Eastern Tibet, he said, Tiokamba, and was a Well, that's a region of common. They have their own special dialect. They all recognize that dialect because Tibet was all up and down. So you had, they say, Lumba, Get, Every valley had its own dialect, right? Like Switzerland until, until modernity hit. You have Basel, Dutch, Zurich, you know. Every every town had its own dialect. Or every city had its own dialect. Every valley has its own dialect. When you're having in an up and down kind of country, then dialects tend to be pretty local. So, but the simple point here is that when Geshe in the age of nineteen, you know, rode his horse across Tibet for two months to get to the Monastic University, he was invited right into the Kumsen, the house within the monastic college of the Monastic University that he'd sought out, where they all spoke his dialect because they were from that region. So suddenly after travelling across strained territory, I mean two months of travelling on horse, finally suddenly, oh, I'm home. And they're talking, you know, home, hometown dialect, you know. And the bonds find really strongly. And then he's there for 24 years before he gets his Geshe degree. Those kind of bonds, really, really strong. And these are good monks. These are good monks. So it's not just for lay people. It happened among monks, and it was, it was lovely to see that sense, because you wonder, well, you know, all these men together, no women, no nurturing, where's the mamas, they left their mamas, and so forth, and there was just a lot of warmth, of kindness, of bonding among the monks in their own colleges, and so forth, and then overall, there were exceptions, but overall, friendly, vigorous, dynamic rivalry. You know, the monks of Sera debating with the monks of of Loseling, what have you, or, or of Depung, you know. But it was friendly, it was competitive. But it was friendly. When they were getting out and having these great debates, boy, they really wanted their team to win. But they know this is for fun, you know, and this is to sharpen our minds so we can practice Dharma better. So, coming back. In the midst of the reality, of just the reality that we do have stronger bonds with our own parents, with our children, if we have children, siblings and so forth, how does that fit into this Buddhist ideal, which is really quite a universal ideal of unconditional love, undi- unconditional compassion, the evenness of one's caring, how does that fit in? And it's, it's a subtle, I think it's a wonderful challenge, and it calls for wisdom, it calls for intelligence, because it's easy to be, how do you say, ha, ah, crude. And that is to be in a close relationship and start, let's say, let's say with a, a girlfriend, boyfriend, could be a spouse. And then, as one goes into deeper, deeper equanimity, feeling a sense of distance coming in. But after all, you're just a sentient being, you know. And you'll die one day, and and relationships all change. Who knows what you'll think tomorrow? And and I'm changing. And that it can go flat. The intimacy, the the warmth of a very, very meaningful relationship could actually get diluted. It could get thin out, lose heart, because one's becoming so spiritual. I say that with tongue in cheek. So, this is where that, that almost like surgery, that precision comes in, and it's really important. Because what is being teased out, whether it's within a monastic house within a university, and the spe- special bonds, and they were, there was some attachment for sure. And, oh, there's just no question. There was sometimes really strong attachment for the teacher. I mean, benevolent, benign, but nevertheless, it was attachment. You know, it was attachment. In addition to reverence, also attachment. And so, how can one tease out the attachment? Well, let's just take a romantic relationship. Teasing out the attachment would be teasing out the self-centered, the self-centered part. And attending more and more when engaging with the other, more and more, I'm here for you, I'm here for you, right? Rather than what can do for me, I'm expecting this, I'm expecting that, I want this, you, you, I need you to do this for me. Now that's attachment. Attachment, Whereas insofar as one is really attending to the other person, wishing that person well, happiness and the causes of happiness, that's loving-kindness. So one, this practice is to tease out, to filter out, almost like pulling things out, threads out, pulling the threads, the ties of attachment out, and so it becomes just more and more a sheer expression of loving-kindness. When we have two people doing that for each other, recognizing maybe attachment brought them together, but it's loving kindness that keeps them together. Then it can be really quite a wonderful unfolding, not only each individual spiritually maturing, but the relationship maturing, as they are maturing together, and the sense of mutual respect, affection and trust, deepening, the sense of loving kindness deepening, and what might have brought them together might have been hedonic pleasure. You give me hedonic pleasure, I'll give you hedonic pleasure, let's work out a deal right and seeing that we certainly do take care of each other one gets ill the other one takes care of one has financial problem of course the other one is there and so forth but in a, a really a spiritual relationship a dharma based marriage romantic relationship then the emphasis starts to shift based upon the hedonic more into the eudaimonic into the genuine happiness that the real the centerpiece of the relationship is one of spiritual friendship and spiritual friendship, there are many types of friendship, golf friendship, business friendships, many, many types of friendship, right? But there's spiritual friendship, which is all about how can I serve you in your spiritual practice to assist you in your pursuit of genuine happiness. And if you'd like to be my spiritual friend, I'd love it if you can help me when the opportunity arises to find greater spiritual, spiritual well-being, genuine happiness. And so that becomes more and more central, and you find that this person is becoming your best spiritual friend. I mean, there's your Lama, but that's a bit, that's a bit vertical. It's, it's, not, it's not so much horizontal. But this is a horizontal, but a deepening, deepening relationship of a spiritual friendship, where you're there indeed for the hedonic, material needs, medicine, and so forth, and so on, but it gets oriented more and more to how can we assist each other in finding genuine happiness, truly being spiritual friends. That's really quite a wonder to behold. Really wonderful. Now, let's again get real. I mean, there's an ideal, and I don't think it's silly. I don't think it's so far beyond reach that it's not possible. But now, just as in speaking about guru yoga and relationship with a guru, if one wants to be really realistic, then one has to ask, well, what what if the guru misbehaves? What if the guru starts to financially exploit his students? Sexually, to take the obvious one, sexually exploit the female students. That's exploitation. I, mean, I don't know. I don't know any other nicer word for it. I think it's sexual exploitation. So what? Or the the, the the guru does things that just clearly are unwholesome. They're wrong. What then? And then there's a whole teaching on that. You know, don't be stupid. That's kind of the teaching, the essence of it. Don't be stupid. You know, and his holiness has a whole discourse on that. I'm not going to go there right now, but in terms of the actual reality of situations, does it ever happen? That in a relationship, it could be a romantic relationship, it could be a friendship, it could be a business partnership, it could be a variety of things. Where one side, one member, let's say Jack and Jill, Jill is really attending to Jack with loving kindness, with an openness, with a freedom of attachment, a real spirit of service, really wanting to be helping out. How can I I be of service? And Jack picks up on this. Well... I asked Jill for this, and she just gives me. And I asked her for that, and then she gave me that too. And then I thought, well, maybe I can ask her and see what happens if I ask her this. And she gives me that too. Wow, she's easy. And one starts to see, wow, I certainly do like having Jill around. She gives me whatever I want. In the meantime, what's he giving? He's giving more requests. And so then we see an asymmetry here that one side is all for the suburbs and the other one is all for, thank you, give me more. Give me more. How, much, how much can I pull out of you? This is pretty cool. I've never met anybody like you. Can I have your entrails too? How about your bone marrow? You know, how much can I get out? And after a while one sees, hey, this is, there's something wrong here. There's an asymmetry here. One is bringing such warmth, kindness, generosity, selfless, and the other one just sucking it all up. And you say, wait a minute. And so if you're Jill, And in a kind of a relationship like that, it can be any kind, of course. It doesn't have to be a romantic relationship. Then this is where wisdom comes in. And that is, of course, it's called codependence. It's called many, many things. It's called an unhealthy relationship. But if one sees this is becoming a trend, where there's no symmetry here, there's no mutual. It's not mutual. It's now just giving, 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 taking, taking, taking. Then with wisdom, without thinking, okay, then I'm going to love this person less, I'm going to care less. I'm going to terminate the relationship. Rather thinking, I'm going to care just as much, but I'm going to care with wisdom. And is this good for this person? Because if I go along with this, that you keep on asking and I just keep on giving no matter what, is this good for you? Is this a habit that's going to serve you well in your life? That you find very generous, open-hearted, giving people and you suck them dry. Is that a habit that I want to help instill in you, and I'm your first victim? And then you'll find you can do it with me, and then you'll find another really kind, gracious person. Do Do I want to help you with that? Do I want to help you in that trend of being exploitative, selfish, and manipulative? And is that being, from my side, loving you, is this really in your, in, in your service? I think the answer is obviously not. In which case, without having to say, okay, now I'm going to have to look after myself, and I'm going to have to put up barriers, and I'm going to have to put, establish boundaries, all the kind of cliches we talk about, in the same spirit of loving kindness, but now with wisdom, then coming in and saying, you know, I, I no, I'm not going to give you that. I'm not going to give you that. And then the person says, oh, but you're being selfish. That's the quickie, you know. Generous, 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 and then seemingly not generous, but you're being generous with wisdom. And the person may not like that, probably won't, because they just really like taking. But this is your act of kindness. Sometimes act of kindness is wrathful. Sometimes it's ferocious. Sometimes it's just smart. Say, no, I won't give you this. It's not in your best interest to keep on in this mode of the relationship. So, this cultivation of equanimity, I think it really has to be done with wisdom. Otherwise, it very easily falls into the false facsimile of just aloof indifference, where one feels evenly, not much for anybody. But to bring in such wisdom that each day is fresh, each encounter is fresh. Many, many changes, but what remains constant is one's open and unconditional caring for the other. So we'll go into the classic meditation, I think we'll attend this time more classically, focusing first on the so-called neutral person, then the person who is an object of attachment, the person who is an object of aversion. But of course it's not that simple. I mean, it's, it's good to do that, that's a classic practice, and we will do it in just a couple of minutes. But it's also in any kind of relationship, sibling, romantic, friendship, and so forth, people don't always behave in this, in homogeneously, right? So sometimes a person who really, it is a, a very loving relationship, and that it's mutually loving, mutually respective, respectful, and so forth, on occasion this person will just have a bout of mental afflictions coming in. You know, it comes up, like getting the flu, or bronchitis, or what have you. And sometimes the mind gets inundated. The person gets caught in the clutch of the eagles of craving, selfishness, jealousy, what have you. And then behavior comes out that's really not friendly, not loving, not anything good. It's just behavior dominated by mental afflictions. And here's this close relationship and here's this person who is your close friend, your lover, your spouse, what have you, behaving in a very unfriendly way. And, of course, spouses often treat each other worse than anybody else treats them. Right? Isn't that true? (laughs) It's kind of ironic, but kind of true. Um, When that happens, and and then somehow we get through it. But when that happens, in the same way, recognizing my love is for the person, not for the behavior. My love is for the person, not for the mental afflictions. My caring for this person is constant as that person constantly wants to find happiness and be free of suffering. So is my caring for that person constant. But I won't respond the same in every situation. And I will try to bring as much wisdom to this relationship as possible to be the best spiritual friend I can for this person. So when the person behaves badly, to just be a doormat is not to be of service. It's not. Really not. It's just encouraging the behavior. Yep, you can get away with it. You can get away with it because I just, I just gave you the green, the green light. Yep, treat me like a doormat. Just fine. Then you'll treat somebody else like a doormat, somebody else like a doormat, and suffering will, will proliferate. So a lot of subtle issues here, right? But if we can understand this well, it can be like this simple practice of cultivating equanimity. It can be like an elixir, that it brings warmth into relationships that are otherwise bland and not much heart, into a relationship with the person in the bank, in the grocery store, the person, the people we encounter all over the place were just other people. It brings a sense of heart to them, where previously it was just more, I, it. It brings depth, it brings wisdom to our very loving relationships, sifting out the attachment and filling it in with loving kindness and wisdom. And for those relationships that are difficult, that are at a contentious, adversarial on occasion, brings in more compassion, more wisdom, and all in all brings out an evenness. That however people are behaving, however we ourselves behave, under the domination of wholesome mental impulses or unwholesome, afflictive, two constants, people always want to find happiness. And if we can always wish them to find happiness and apply our greatest wisdom to help them then we're truly a friend maybe something like that onaso let's practice as we return to this theme of equilibrium, of balance, manifesting in so many different guises, as we set out by settling the body in equilibrium, deeply relaxed and yet vigilant, the respiration settling in its own rhythm, effortless and uninhibited, Finally, to come on friendly terms, non-adversarial terms with your own mind, by gently resting it in a sense of ease, comfort and relaxation, stillness and clarity. Gently soothing it into, into a state of calm with mindfulness of breathing. Let's begin the main practice, once again in a slightly unorthodox, but not misguided way, by coming from the inside out, as we attend to ourselves, and recognizing that on occasion when the mind is wholesome, our behavior is benevolent, we may feel realistically pretty good, our, pretty good about ourselves, content, friendly with ourselves, on occasion maybe a bit more indifferent. On occasion, when the worst of us brought, is brought out, mental afflictions manifest, dominate behavior. We may even feel a sense of aversion for ourselves, can't stand being near ourselves wish we could run off and leave ourselves behind. There we are. Constantly wishing for happiness and freedom from suffering. As you breathe in and breathe out, with the full awareness of the whole range of behavior, the range of mental states, from deeply afflicted to wonderfully wholesome and benign. Breathe in and breathe out. With every out-breath, breathing out this light from your heart, arousing the yearning, the wish. May I find happiness in the causes of happiness? As you breathe in, Imagining the, darkne- the darkness subsiding, withdrawing into the heart. May I be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And let this gentle sense of caring about yourself be constant, for you're always worthy of such care. Now expand the field of your awareness and bring to mind as vividly as possible, with or without a clear visualization. That's up to you. But bring to mind, if possible, of someone you know well. It could even be a relative. It could be someone you know in business or a neighbor. Someone you know well, but for whom you feel no particular attachment or aversion. This person moved away. You wouldn't really care. Moved ex- me- moved next door. You wouldn't really care. This person doesn't really seem to matter one way or another for your own well-being. Bring this person vividly to, my- to mind and attend closely. Let this person become real for you. You might know of some of this person's aspirations, hopes and fears. And with the awareness, this person is just as worthy of finding happiness as yourself. Breathe out and breathe in. May you find the happiness, genuine happiness and its causes. May you be free of suffering and its causes. And imagine it to be so. Imagine this person's fears and anxieties vanishing away. Suffering. Vanishing away. And this person finding greater and greater happiness. Let the appearance of this person fade back into the space of your mind, and then bring to mind vividly a person whom you may indeed love very deeply, truly care about, but for whom there is also attachment, a neediness, what can you do for me, I need, I, I, comes up very prominently. with the eye of wisdom, recognize the self-centered attachment in the relationship. The path that's full of expectations sometimes demands but is easily disappointed upset by the other person's behavior it's all about me this is the nature of attachment it's really about me and loving kindness is really about you Breathe out and breathe in. Breathe out your love, your genuine affection. For this person, with every outbreath, may you find the happiness you seek and cultivate the causes of genuine happiness. With each in-breath, may you be free of suffering and its causes. Let the appearance of this person fade back into the space of the mind. And bring to mind, if there is such a person, someone for whom you may feel real, no no real affection at all, see what's to love here? This person has been awful, dominant mental afflictions, behavior, disagreeable, harmful, What's to love? Certainly not the mental afflictions, and not the behavior either. But afflictions and behavior come and go, and what is constant is this person like yourself always wishes to find happiness, however misguided the efforts on many occasions, always wishes to be free of suffering, However much this person seems committed to the causes of suffering, so worthy of compassion. Breathe out, breathe in, as before. And with each in-breath especially, imagine this person emerging from and becoming free of the afflictions and the behavior that have made this person so difficult, so difficult to love. Imagine this person realizing his or her own heart's desire, finding genuine happiness and the causes of happiness, how lovable such people are, how easy to love. Allow the appearance of this person to fade back into the space of the mind. And now expand this space in all directions, above and below, to all the sides. Breathing out, breathing in. each one be free of the suffering caused by delusion and ignorance, attachment and craving, anger and hatred. Imagine these afflictions in the form of darkness dissolving into your own heart. Each one find the genuine happiness of leading a wholesome way of life. The happiness from balancing the mind. The balance of knowing or the joy, the happiness from knowing reality as it is. All appearances, and for just a moment let your awareness rest without an object, without a subject, in the center. This is a brief mm, footnote to the comments earlier. Sometimes marriages, romances, and even friendships are not worth sustaining. It doesn't mean that we abandon them with hatred or that we relinquish our loving kindness for them. Just this particular relationship is not beneficial. Maybe it brings out the worst in both. Just arousing each other's mental afflictions bringing up harmful behavior, then better separate. Not a big deal. I think Tibetans had a very, it's no utopia. There's not even a question about it being utopia. But I think they had a very sensible notion about marriage. I remember very early on, it was one of my earliest teachers, Sakya teacher. He said, you know, marriage is a social contract. You don't make it before the Buddhas. The monks don't only come in to bless it after it's happened. But the monks don't marry people. It's part of the monastic vow. Don't do matchmaking. So, it'd be a social contract. You bring in the families. Hey, you see her? You see him? They want to be together. Okay, got it. You know, and that's it. It's a social contract, social agreement. The families know, the village knows. And then, if the relationship is just turning out to be miserable for each, each one of them, then they kind of come like, I don't really want to live with you. Do you want to live with me? You don't? Okay, let's split up. And it's kind of that simple. Then, you know, why be together? Find somebody else to be with. Or become a monk. <laughs> you always had plan B. <laughs> oh, lasso. Let's see what's cooking today in today's mail. Lots. Oh, it looks like we oh, gazoodles. Okay. Here's one about mundo practices, preliminary practices. Could the mundo practiced... With our present ordinary mind, help us to remove obstacles and generate merit in order to improve our shamatha practice? Yes. You never thought I could give a short answer. There it is, yes. Although shamatha has to be achieved before the tantric practices, not necessarily. As I mentioned the other day, shamatha can be freshly achieved through a state of generation. You don't have to practice, you don't have to achieve shamatha before tantric practices. It can be right in the midst of that. Can Mundo help us to move? to more advances in shamatha? It certainly can. Yeah, if it's done with faith, with devotion, with clarity, with sincerity, yes. How can we find a balance or even complement between these two practices? Oh, I'm really, I must find, I'm I'm very much of a galupa in this regard. Each tradition has its strengths. What I'm about to refer to, I think, is one of the great strengths of the galupa tradition. I really love it, I think it's so sensible. And that is for the Gulupa, in the Gulupa tradition when they're referring to these so-called preliminary practices like vajrasattva, mandala offering, prostration, guru-yoga, bodhicitta and so forth. I pr- imagine it happens on occasion, they say, okay, do a hundred thousand of this, hundred thousand of that and so forth, but overall it's much more like, what are the mundo, the so-called preliminaries? Mundo means coming before, going before, going before something else. As His Holiness said in the, in the first Sequence of teachings that I, I translated for him back in 1979. He said, The mundo, what do they precede? These are preceding practices. What do they precede? They precede Vajrayana. So the notion that when you first learn about Buddha Dharma, now you should start doing 100,000 prostrations and so forth, I just think that's ill advised. And his homin said as much. He said, This mundo, the Vajrasattva, a preliminary to Buddha Dharma? Come on. This is cr- I, it's a little bit crazy. You don't know what Vajrasattva is. You don't know how you're reciting the mantra. You don't know squat. You don't know the Four Noble Truths. But you're going to go, Om Benzatato. You're going to do it in Tibetan, Tibetan accent on no that, not, not Om Benzatato, Om Benzatato. <laughs> Whatever happened to Vajrasattva? Whoever makes prayers to Benzatato? You ever ever, ever, ever prayed, made, made prayers to benza <laughs> that, that's That's, you have, yeah. It's, it used to be called Vajrasattva, but you can't say Vajrasattva in Tibetan. And so, Benza Sato. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> so, His Holiness said simply, He was never ridiculing the Mundo, and nor am I. But he said, The Mundo are preliminary practices of a Vajrayana. If you want to know what are the practices prior to the Mundo, it's the Four Noble Truths, it's the three principles of the path, it's learning Buddha Dharma. Ethics, samadhi, wisdom, how about that? Those are the mundo practices. But they're not mundo practices, they're the main dish of the sutrayana. That is the foundation, and then you have the mundo, and then, and then beyond that, the tantra. So he said that really clearly. Uh, often that's not taught, and I think it, frankly, I just don't think it's wise. But then, what's why, not wise for one person, maybe just, just what it, another person needs. So it's just an opinion. But it is His Holiness's opinion. So I don't think that's trivial. But if one does really does have a foundation, quite a, quite a number of you do, good, solid theoretical understanding, if there's faith and so forth, then these two can be very complementary. Oh, and that is to say that the, the Mundo practices, which are preceding the state of regeneration, the state of completion, preceding Tech and tut like that, hmm, that these can definitely help to remove obstacles to accrue merit which empowers you and helps the path of shamatha go more smoothly. Oh, but I was going to say something. Oh, his... There was, there, but there was a point right there. Tip of the tongue. Tip of the tongue. Hmm. So just Maybe that's enough. But the, the shamatha will help the preliminary practices. The preliminary practices will help the shamatha. That's the long and the short of it. Having said that, it is significant that in, in the whole of the Pali Canon there are no references to preliminary practices, but there are plenty of references to shamatha and people achieving shamatha. And so, it really, having taught a number of people, especially, especially from, but not beginning with the three-month three three retreats three years ago, and watching uh, those who have continued in practice since then, uh, that it really strikes me that there are multiple ways to accrue merit and to dispel obstacles. And one is, is more ritual fashion or formal practice style by prostrations, mandala offering, and so, so forth. And the other one is just getting right down into the trenches and doing the practice and purifying a lot in the process and accruing merit a lot in the process as well. And is it possible to achieve shamatha prior to doing the preliminary practices? The question is unequivocally yes. No question about it. So that's that. Yeah, the, yeah, thank you. Let's, none of us worry. It, it would be ridiculous to worry about where this clock went to. Um, it just doesn't matter. And whoever needed it, they probably just, whoever took it probably just needed it. So we'd be happy. Dingo yeah. Kenze You know the story? Dingo Kenze this extraordinary Dzogchen master, he visited Tibet quite late in his life. Quite late in his life, I think it was Madhye Ricard told me this story. But after in exile, but finally was able to go back to Tibet. He went back with a whole, with an entourage, and then when he was there, I mean, he's this grand master. People flocked from hundreds of miles to just be in his presence, including some pretty extraordinarily accomplished yogis, tantricas, who really had powers, and they gathered around him. He is the master, and so they were there. And they were traveling along in caravan. It, it must have been—I wasn't there. It must have been a little bit of a clip out of old Tibet, you know, because they were traveling where jeep, there were no jeep roads, no, four, no, no four-wheel drive roads, and so they were traveling by horses. And uh, really old, old school, you know. And, and they're out there in this really wild country, Golog It's been wild for a really long time. And lo and behold, some bandits came. Stole their horses. <laughs> took off. Dingo goes at Dingo Kensit and you cool as a cucumber. Yeah, then we walk. Whatever. You know, they took the horses, they probably needed the horses. You know. In the meantime, some of these really accomplished sorcerers in the entourage. They're going. I don't know. they're doing their own quiet little deal on the side <laughs> and what happened was these poor robbers they were finding everything was going to hell in a handbasket they were having one kind of obstacle after another everything was just going to hell for them with their you know newfound horses but it was just misery for them and it suddenly I mean suddenly just one adversity striking after another is they're making off with the horses and it was so intense they, they came back and said, you can have your horses back, you know. And Dingle at him, but she said, no, if you need the horses, take them. She said, no, no, we don't want your horses. We don't want your horses. Keep your horses. <laughs> Let us alone. <laughs> kind of a cool story. I, they did get back the horses. And I think they learned a good lesson. Well, here's a long one. So... I'll come back to it. I'll see if there's just a shorter one. I always gravitate towards the shorter ones. Oh, this was from yesterday. Good. Well, why, why postpone it? So, I won't read all of it, but... So, here's the question. Uh, the possibility of people going into a long-term retreat, I mean, a very serious retreat with a strong aspiration, to practice and achieve shamatha, but two people doing it together who are in a romantic relationship. Okay, um, how is that? Well, my first answer is talk with Nick and Michelle. Yeah, they're married. They've had, they've been married for years. They were in retreat together for eighteen months, so they can really, they really know what they're talking about, and it went very well for them. They both had very good experience, so they're the experts. I've never been. I've been married for a long time. My wife is more of a green Tara type. She's much more in in the world and really active, just an embodiment of service. So we've never done any long retreats. I I hope we will one of these days, but I don't have the experience yet. So, but Nick and Michelle do, and there, there's another Mexican couple right now. They're going. They were here for the spring retreat. They're going off. They're entering very very soon, and so. Um, should really ask people with experience. But here's the question, since sensual desire is among the five obscurations, yeah, sensual desire, sensual craving, that's true. Could staying in retreat with a partner for whom one feels strong desire become a serious obstacle for progressing through the stages and achieving shamatha, even if both partners are serious and committed to their practice? (coughs) The answer is, yeah, it could, it could. I mean, there you are with your partner whom you obviously find physically attractive, otherwise probably wouldn't be there in that relationship, and you're trying to do something following the breath, and then you look over your partner, oh. (laughs) Breath, partner. Hmm. Breath, partner. Breath, sex. Breath, sex. Oh, man, this is a tough decision. (laughs) So, yeah, that could be a problem. That could be a problem, sure. Um, And this is where, if one can be really focusing on it, and this can be a wonderfully maturing aspect of the relationship. If both, I mean, it's a marvelous thing, if both really are committed to each other and they're principally committed to each other's, that is not just two independent units, but each other's as a couple, their spiritual maturation unfolding each other's genuine happiness. If that's the primary commitment in the relationship, then sacrifices would be made so they can help each other in their practice. In which case, um, if one is very focused there, I think the obvious um, advice would be that the really sensual aspect of the relationship would be diminished. It would be kind of, maybe not right now, not right now. The love is there, the commitment is there, totally, but for right now, let this be central. And then when the retreat's over, then whatever flows will be our choice. Our choice, just that simple, our choice, but in this it's going to be simpler, less cluttered if we just focus on this and then for this for this phase really focusing on loving kindness as being the bond that connects us and afterwards if we want to decide we want to have children or what have you, sure why not, that's your choice. Are there potential advantages to being in retreat with a partner while accomplishing shamatha? which could outweigh the potential risks proposed above. Uh, Sure, I mean, one thing I've always discouraged, and I I think it didn't even need to be said, so I didn't for this retreat, but I do strongly believe it based upon a lot of experience, and that is when going into retreat, that's really a rotten time to start a new romantic relationship. It's really bad timing, you know? Um, Because it's just going to be one just horrendous distraction. So it's really a bad time to start a romantic, romantic relationship. Postpone it. you know. Give me a rain check you know, later. But if the, if the relationship is already there, and it's not just one of mutual sensual desire and hedonic pleasure, but rather one of real commitment, affection, trust, respect, really a caring for each other's genuine happiness, um, in that regard, Then consider the opposite, and that is, there is such a relationship. It's close, it's intimate, it's meaningful. That's the word I'm really looking for. It's meaningful. And now, but we're going to be totally separate. Well then it's just a simple matter of of pros and cons. Of pros and cons. And that is, will this thin out the relationship? Will it weaken the relationship? Something that was meaningful? Will it make it less meaningful? How so? What's the disadvantage? What are the advantages? Well, the advantage is you won't be, with a, you won't be engaging sensorily with a person that you find very sexually attractive and would want to pursue that. And so there are real possibilities there. Um, and I would, at that point, I would just leave it for the couple because what I never, ever want to do is intervene in other people's intimate personal relationships. That's not my business. That's just not my business. I respect people too much. And I also know how ignorant I am. At least I have some idea how ignorant I am. So, yeah, there could be advantages to both sides. There could be advantages to being together as the closest of spiritual friends, just having someone there who's truly a spiritual friend, and then seeing, and, and just with mutual agreement saying, let's just leave the other side to the side for the for the, for the time being. And there could be advantage, love you totally, but just for the simplicity's sake, let's keep a bit separate so we can just be single-pointed and then just sending each other empathetic joy, empathetic joy, loving kindness, and so forth, but just out of mind, the whole, <clears throat> how do you say, other aspect, the obscuration aspect. Third point here, just as Devadatta lost his capacity for jhana because of ill will, ill will, jealousy, yeah, is very true, is there a risk of losing shamatha once it has been achieved because of the desire that is part of being in an intimate relationship in the desire realm? Could that happen? Sure. It could happen. Would it be, perhaps be more straightforward strategy to stay in solitary retreat until gaining some measure of stability in more accommodating stages of practice, such as techupt, and only then to consider staying in retreat with a partner from whom one feels sexual desire? These are all possibilities. This is yeah, this, this, this is just a whole range of possibilities. There's no one right answer here. Of that, uh, that, I'm sure. There's no formula. Oh, you want to go to Shabbat to stay separate. Oh, oh, you should say separate. Or you should be together. There's no such formula. But there is something here. I think there's some real wisdom in the option that's presented here in terms of texture. What just sprang to mind as, as I read that was when I was really under close monitoring. I mean, seeing him a lot. Gacchata He's still very much my lama. Uh, I just don't physically get to see him so often. Uh, but when I was seeing him a lot, uh, through the 90s, 1990s, um, on one occasion in our conversations, I must have mentioned or he was aware of that anger would sometimes arise. And he said, Oh, don't be bothered by that. When anger arises, oh, don't be bothered. Just look at it. And the other one's, Don't, he was really giving me Dzogchen advice for, for anger don't recoil, don't, don't antidote, don't accept, don't reject, don't, oh no, anger again, I can't stand it, oh this is terrible, why am I still angry, I've been practicing for so long, cut all the crap, just, it comes up and just, poo, nail it, just, view, he said, just view it, just view it, he'd been training me in Dzogchen for years by then, just view it, there is nothing intrinsically afflictive about what people call anger, It's afflictive if and only if, or to the extent that there is grasping onto it, the cognitive fusion, the identification with it. If it simply arises, observe its nature. Now there are two ways of doing that. There's the way that he didn't train me, but I've been trained in this earlier by Michael Lupa teachers, and that is stage regeneration. Whatever comes up, you view it with stage regeneration, by power of imagination, and you view this, you imagine this to be mirror-like primordial wisdom. You imagine it. That it's not just, oh, I don't like him. It's mirror-like, as you look at it, you look at it with pure vision, and you see this as dharmakaya manifesting. So you're overriding impure vision with the awareness of the lack of inherent nature of anger that it's not intrinsically afflictive, and then you're putting a spin on it with imagination, taking the fruit as the path. That's one way of doing it. But what Gyatronabhaji told me was just straight texture. And that is, just view it, just view it, look right into its nature. No imagination, no modification, no nothing, just make it, look right into it. And don't fear it, don't get sucked, in, sucked into it, just view it. And in such, in such a way then this mirror-like wisdom may actually arise. Well if that's true for anger, why not for sensual craving, sensual desire? What's that one? I always think of it within the body, it's right here. Amitabha, desire, craving, attachment. Oh, primordial wisdom of discernment, of discernment. So, sure, there's a possibility. You might want to wait, you might want to wait. So, but there's no formula. Very good questions, no formula, no one right answer. And this is really something for the loving couple to really mature to bring greater and greater wisdom to their relationship so that they are just really nurturing other, truly being each other's best friends. That's really deep. I mean, it's really good. Good, good. I will read this. Thank you, Brett. I will read it closely later. It's not a question, but a comment. I will read it carefully. Oh, and I think this is the final one, so I think So the first, this is all practice, and this first one pertains to awareness of awareness. I will read it, I'm aware. I'm aware that I'm aware. Then by releasing and inverting, we observe a sense of agency that is doing something. Is the agent, the doer, yeah, doer and agent is the same, a property of the mind? Or the same as awareness that is being aware, or something else, are we supposed to focus on it in the same way as awareness of awareness. Uh, the answer is, yeah, we, we are to focus on it in the same way as awareness of awareness. But again, we're not trying to find the right answer. That is, okay, give me the right answer and I'll, I'll go look for it. Right? Uh, but rather, in looking for agency, as one and it doesn't have to be in a formal session, you can do this when you're out walking, attending inwards so I'm speaking so it's kind of easy because I'm actually doing something most of you are more sitting passively right now but when the words are coming out this means there's a speaker and observing as the speech is coming out just like doing something, as in uh, inverting and releasing the awareness, now speech is coming out. Words are coming out. As words are coming out, it is really in a, in a very precise, sharp, specting intro. To see, is do I? Is there an experience? I won't, input, I won't put in the word I yet. Is there an experience of someone? Must be me who's speaking. Is anything coming to mind? It's a question. There's there's no right answer. It's, It's a question that you answer by looking closely. Is there a sense, with or without imagery? So on occasion, as we're attending inwards, I'll go back to awareness of awareness. As we're going in and attending to the agent, on occasion, as you attend closely you may actually have an appearance some objective appearance maybe an appearance of your face it could be an appearance of something else but something actually appears oh that that's that's the appearance of the person who's doing it right and then you take a step back and say well who's aware of that right you take a a step back inward deeper inward so on the one hand an appearance might actually occur as I was just looking over at Susan, I saw an image of my face. Not that I saw your face and my face, but I had a sense that there's someone here with a face who's saying something, an image. And then it was really fleeting and then it vanished again. And right now there's no image at all, no image of the speaker, but sometimes what crops up. I just saw,, it, you know, there, there, were the, it, there it again happened. So sometimes it's an objective appearance, a mental image. Sometimes it's something just more subjective, more like an emotion or desire. Something more like a sense of presence of who's there. So this is what one is looking at. I'm not trying to conceptually equate it. Is this a property of the mind? Is it this? Is it that? Is it that? But rather just looking at how it is actually is experienced, just as you are attending to how awareness is actually experienced. Regarding thoughts, I have heard release them immediately, and also Padmasambhava says, each time you observe the nature of any ideas, that, ri- that arise, they will vanish by themselves. For me, this takes, a w- this, takes, this takes a while of observing them. Can you clarify the treatment of thoughts again? Um, sure, there are different approaches. There are different approaches. Maitripa teaches this practice. He calls it the shamat of non-conceptuality comes in a spacious path of freedom. He was one of the Indian Mahasiddhas about a thousand years ago. He teaches this. And he teaches it really simply, like Tsongkhapa teaches it really simply. My tripa also teaches it very simply. And that is, it's just the emphasis here. While with Tsongkhapa, the emphasis was something affirmative. Do attend to the sheer luminosity and sheer non-conceptuality experience thereof. That's affirmative. Maitripa, the great Mahasiddha, said... Attend to the sheer absence of thoughts, just whatever thought comes up, and that was way too exaggerated, it's just immediate, just gone. You're really attending to no object. But attending to, in attending to no object, you're still knowing something. So you're attending to no object. Padmasambhava starts that way, remember? attend to no object but you're radiant, you're vivid, you're sharp you're clear, you're luminescent and you're attending to no object and any any object comes up you just release it instantly and you come right back and in attending to no object there's something left, awareness you get that by default, that's what's left over and you just stay there. So the different approaches. That was my tripa. Uh, and do they, may they, vanish instantly upon observing them? Sure. They may. Whatever works. But overall, the practice is very soft. It's very gentle. And insofar as releasing thoughts, it's a very subtle release. It's not a sledgehammer. All that's over. Good. That's the mail for today. We still have some minutes left. Comments or questions, especially about practice? Anything coming up? Yes, we'll start with Maria. And the microphone, please.
1: It's- continuing with, with uh, what you were just uh, saying about the thoughts i've yes. been having um, a little bit of trouble in releasing some thoughts it dip- doesn't matter what thought is but
0: and the practice is, is in awareness of awareness
1: Ah, no, 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 in settling the mind.
0: Oh, then it's entirely no, different.
1: No, sorry, sorry. In in um, cause, because I'm not, of I'm not releasing the thoughts in um, in settling the mind. I'm just observing them. Good. No, in uh, mindfulness of breathing. Mindfulness of breathing. Okay. So um, I've been able to observe that when the thought is coming, mm-hmm. and sometimes I just easily release it. I just just describe it. Mm-hmm. But there are some other times that I've, i I kind of need to use my eyes to just like... <laughs> I don't know, it's like I cannot release it because it's still there. I, I'm trying to, to, to let it go, uh-huh. but it remains.
0: Have you, have you tried doing like this? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> not yet. <laughs> <Okay>.
0: <laughs> That's the last resort. <laughs> so
1: I, I know I'm not supposed to do that, but... <laughs> I imagine your. I sometimes imagine my hand like doing this, you know. Uh But and some other times the sword that you described the other day with the with the, but that doesn't work.
0: Uh (laughs) Uh You know, I understand. They're they're um, oh, they're like just a, a virus. that just won't go away. You know, they keep on coming back and back. Um, I like imagery myself, that is not so much visualizing the imagery during the practice but having it in the back of the mind. Rather like bodhicitta, you know, when you're practicing, you arouse bodhicitta, then when you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, you're not thinking about all sentient beings but it's kind of there in the background. In a similar way, the image I like is, and I've often used it, is of a gust of breeze blowing away dry autumn leaves. A gust, you know, like when it's late autumn, like November, early November, and the leaves on the tree are really dead i mean they're crispy and then whoosh, and they just fall off the tree so they they just fall off the branches and they just whoosh, that easily the tree didn't have to go it's <laughs> 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 not awful it's just very charming <laughs> but not needed not needed so so as you and the and and why do the do the leaves depart so easily from the tree? Because the tree has so little clinging. Now, if there are green leaves, then the tree has a lot of clinging. You know how it can be really hard to pull a leaf off a tree. You know it's all green and moist. And it's, oh, oh, the whole tree wants to bend over, and you cannot have my leaf. You know, but when they're dry, it just and it falls right off. That's because the tree is maturing in Shama to practice, getting over grasping, <laughs> <laughs> <getting over-dressing. laughs> yeah, and so you're very green, yeah, so just get old before your time, and then it's just relax, relax, and as you're breathing out, it, this, is where the, this is where relaxation just comes in, you know, it's just relaxation, it's kind of like, even for mindfulness of breathing, we can use the metaphors from settling the mind, the old man, the old woman, sitting on a bench, watching other people's children play, you know. You get that. that, It just captures the ambience. Other people, other people's children play with the mothers taking care of the children. So you just know, no matter what happens, it's not my business. I enjoy watching them, but there's no way I'm getting off this bench. (laughs) I'm not moving. That's what mom and dads are for. I've done my job. I'm seventy years old. You do your job. I'm just here to enjoy. (laughs) And so that quality of awareness with with regards to your thoughts, you know, like. Been there, done that. Thoughts, whatever you got to say, totally <laughs> so relaxed, like Phil Collins, I don't care anymore. <laughs> just release them. Just release them. And but for that, you really have to know in your heart that it's really okay. It's really okay to release them. You know? And that's where giving up attachment to this life, let your mind become Dharma comes in that there are times when it's really worthwhile. It is the best thing to think about something. That's what thoughts are for. They're to be used. You know. But then when they're, when they're no longer needed, then to know, really, I'm just sitting down for a 24-minute period here, and I really don't need to think about anything. Whatever is there. Maybe I'll need to think about it in 24 minutes. But for 24 minutes, I really don't need to. And whatever comes up, Without any conversation. Already. No thank you. And release. Every outbreath, breath. And it's a two step. Two step. And that is the first one when the thoughts come up. First step is. Releasing the grasping. Relaxing. Letting go. Right? And the second step. It could be one half second later. The second step what? Come back with your full attention to, in this case, the sensations of the breath at the nostrils with the sense that this is all I'm doing. Now this is, this is a full-time job. Now everything is about the breath. So first the release and then so totally occupied, so totally single-pointed, unified, coalesced, there's just no room for anything else is my attention is filled with the sensations of the breath. And with those two, they really get edged out. But we need both. It can't be all tight, then we just get uptight, and then it it agitates the mind and more thoughts come out. On the other hand, it can't be just release, because then we release and waiting for the next thought to come in. Oh, vacancy. And they start piling in again. So it's release and then no vacancy. Right? And that's how it's done. But ever so gently and with enormous patience, this is, and now we're you know, three three weeks into the retreat. Now is a time for this eight weeks to get into stride. And it's that balance, that balance of, on the one hand, this certainly is a really conducive environment for meditating, on the one hand, and it's finite. So that brings a sense of urgency. Let's let every day count, every session count, every afternoon, every morning, let it count. Let's get as much benefit from this time as we possibly can a sense of urgency, right? On the one hand. On the other hand, we've had decades to habituate to laxity, to excitation, to, to everything that's opposite of the four immeasurables in shamata. We've had an awful long time to habituate, to craving, hostility, indifference, and so forth, and so on. So knowing, OK, but it really comes down to this. And this is why I'm really so content. And I think why His Holiness encouraged me to teach this. He could have told me anything. I so respect him, pretty much. I, he taught me anything. I'd, he said, "Alan, I'd rather have you teach this." I would do it. I have so much respect for him. He didn't. He said, "Teach what we're doing right now." And I, th- and my sense of it is, it's just so. I would almost say undebatable. I guess, but then somebody would probably want to debate with it. But <laughs> undebatable that it just makes sense. To cultivate a quality of relaxation, stability and vividness, because it's so much better than the opposite. And to get to the point when one sees, you know, I just won't tolerate the status quo anymore. And whether it takes a long time or a short time, the other one's unacceptable. I'll never really find genuine happiness. I'll never find it. It fi- doesn't, doesn't matter what the Dalai Lama says, come and live with me, I'll be your own personal guru. You're now my full-time job. I just want to lead you to enlightenment. won't be enough won't be enough. If the mind is still going OCDD and even the Dalai Lama is your guru, you won't be able to get benefit from it. Not the benefit that he would like to offer. Because your mind is dysfunctional. Right? So just seeing this, this just isn't all. I want to find genuine happiness. I don't want to just go like a, a junkie from one stimulus to another stimulus another stimulus and then fall over dead after a meaningless life. That's not an option. You know? And so whether it's a long time or short time, whether I'm talented or untalented, superior faculties or dull faculties, hey, I just play the play the hand that I was dealt. Play the hand that I was dealt, you know? Physical, health, age, living situation and so forth and so on, say, if this is worthwhile doing, if this is really, really worthwhile doing, then okay, I'm just gonna do it. And that's where the big the big picture comes in. Yeah, we have five weeks left. Okay, so, but... If this is worth doing, then it becomes a really a deep commitment. And, in the same breath, the four are measurables. I just don't think they need an argument. I don't need to be clever. I don't need to bring out some what, you know, really snazzy syllogisms and argumentation to pray. You know, really, loving kindness is better than hatred. Believe me, I'll try to persuade you now. You know, hey, there we are. And so, if that's a foundation to be augmented with all the other dharma that we can embrace, fantastic. But if there's a point, we which just say, this one's not for debate. No matter how long it takes, to this I'm committed. I might become a Christian. That is, one might say, oh, maybe the Buddhist path isn't quite for me. I'm going to become a Christian. And as a Christian, I still want to develop relaxation, stability and vividness and the four measurables. Maybe I'll call them something different. But Christian, atheist, Muslim, whatever, this is the keeper. right? Maybe one finds this, this teacher isn't really... So suitable for oneself, not so helpful. That's okay, no problem. It's almost trivial. It's almost trivial. But the practices aren't trivial. So that kind of commitment, then that's the big vision. This is worth doing, period. And that gives the toughness. All right. Easier or hard, long or short, I'm in. Count me in. Hola, so. Wow, that's a that's a that's a big clock. <laughs> if this one gets stolen, we're gonna they'll bring in a grandfather clock <laughs> or no, something. No, no. So we're being, as you can see, very well taken care of. This is a gift from the Mind Center. Oops. Hola, so enjoy your meal.